Welcome to the Enabled Disabled Podcast. I'm your host, Gustavo Serafini. I was born with a rare physical disability called PFFD. My journey has been about self-acceptance, persistence, and adaptation. On the show, we'll explore how people experience disability, how the stories we tell ourselves can both enable and disable, how vulnerability is the foundation for strength, and why people with disabilities can contribute more than we imagine. I hope that leaders, companies, clinicians, families, and friends will better understand our capacity to contribute to the world and help enable us to improve it. Mariela Paulino is an advocate, technologist, and founder of Project Hearing. Project Hearing's mission is centered on education, building partnerships with allies that are committed to inclusion efforts, engaging with people in the community to learn about assistive technology tools and resources, and advocating for the full inclusion of people with hearing disabilities in society. Mariela is a unique combination of big vision thinker and practical problem solver. Her willingness to learn, her resilience and optimism consistently impress me. I believe Mariela will make the world a better place. And after hearing this episode, I think you'll come to believe it too. We'd love to hear your feedback and share your own stories on our Facebook group. Just search for Enable Disable. Thank you. So happy that we could connect, that you could be here with us today. Um, a lot of things that I want to talk to you about. We've already obviously had some interesting conversations, but I'd like to dig into more of your story and what you're working on and how you're helping to change the world. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you come from, um, what your what your childhood was like, the things that kind of shaped you as in your journey? Absolutely. So my name is Mariela Paulino. I'm Dominican uh, from the Dominican Republic. I emigrated to New York City when I was seven years old. Um, New country, new culture, new language. And then a few months after I came to New York City with my mom and my sister, I contracted something that's called bacterial meningitis. It is a disease. It's actually going to be the anniversary of that on March 22nd. So I have lots of feelings. Um, So I was seven years old. I contracted something bacterial meningitis and I became deaf in both ears. Um, At this time, I had already developed language, Spanish. And um, there was this talk of this technology that was new, relatively new at the time, called a cochlear implant, which is a device that I use on my ears to hear. I actually have my secondary device, so I decided to get my second ear done this December. So I use this mouth device, and it connects to my hearing to allow me to hear. So I got my cochlear implant um, on my right side because my mom wanted me to have the option to decide to get the second ear at a later point in time, which I just did this December. And um, 
learn English as a second language, was fully mainstream in school, was always the only person with a hearing disability. And now that I'm an adult and that I have grown up in the system as a person with a hearing disability, grown up in the educational system, gone through a very extensive career in like entrepreneurship and in the government and higher education, I have all of these experiences um, as a person with a hearing disability that make me feel like I have to give back and share really my experiences what has worked for me, what has not worked for me, what other people can do to make the world more accessible to me. This last Saturday, we hosted a workshop, 15 minutes um, for captioning day. So everything you need to know about hearing accessibility and inclusion. We just did that this Saturday and it was the first workshop of the year. We have more events coming for accessibility. So that's pretty much kind of like Mariela in a quick summary. Fantastic. So I'm, I guess, as somebody who also has, I have a physical disability. So one of the things that interests me um, about people's story that I don't think we talk about enough is how we, how we adapted to the world, right? So it's not just a focus on disability as, as a whole person. How did we as unique people adapt to things, adapt to challenges, Sometimes the disability plays a part, sometimes it doesn't. So for you, for example, was what was, earn, what was learning English like um, with your implants? What, what, how did you adapt to a new language? Oh, that's hard. Um, I think for a very long time as a child, I thought I was in a nightmare. And I was going to wake up from this nightmare and I was going to be able to hear normally again. The last day I lost my hearing, my mom had taken us to a park with lots of kids. And I remember being in this park in what felt like spring. And I remember my mom calling my name, you know, and I could hear my mom's, like I could hear my mom's voice in the midst of all these kids screaming. And I think um, my mother's voice is one of those sounds that is so ingrained in my head. I know what my mother's voice sounds like. And so when I first got the cochlear implant, I remember that it sounded very robotic. It sounded like a robot. It sounded like Mickey Mouse. It sounded horrible. And I think that your hearing is really developed as a result of millions of years of evolution. Like the way way hearing is designed is this beautiful evolutionary mechanism. And so what the cochlear implant does is it creates artificial hearing. It will never be perfect. There are sounds that I'm not able to hear. So initially, and this ear sound sounded very robotic, but the human brain is such a beautiful thing and it is always adapting, always like figuring out how to do things. When you lose your hearing, other senses kind of like pick up and make up, which is actually really important because 
people who have hearing disabilities are better drivers than people who do not have hearing disabilities because their sense of eyesight is just a little bit more expanded. Mm-hmm. So when I first lost my hearing disability, it was very hard, very, very difficult, but I received a lot of support. I received um, services from the NYU Cochlear Implant Center, which is like the number one cochlear implant hospital in the world from like the number one cochlear implant surgeon. At that time, I received speech and hearing therapy. So I was getting all of this support and all of this community that was that wanted me to be successful. I was getting all of the resources that I needed. And I also had which I think is the most important thing, a very supportive family that did not treat me any different. Anything that my sister could do, I was also expected to do because I'm the oldest. So, um, and also my mom, she was very much about toughening me up because when I had the bacterial meningitis, it not only affected my hearing, it also affected um, my ankles and my right foot. It completely destroyed the cartilage. Um, and so I, was, I had to wear crutches and a wheelchair for a time. And there was a time when my mom, my sister and I, we went to a beach. My sister was like six, six years old at the time. She was running circles around me. She was just running. And I was in the sand and I was struggling with my crutches and I felt my mom staring at me and for one minute I was in the crutches and I kind of turned really quickly and then the crutch got caught in the sand and I fell and I saw my mom just staring and she looked so angry and she came over to me she took the crutches she took the crutches and she threw them in the dumpster and she said you're going to walk and here I am, seven, eight years old, just recovering from this very traumatic thing. And my mom was like, you're going to walk. And I'm like, mommy, I don't want to walk. It hurts. It's so difficult. I'm going to slow everybody down and I'm crying. And my mom's like, it doesn't matter. We're going to walk slow as a family. You're going to keep up. If you need to take breaks, we will take breaks. But you are going to walk And that's the same mentality that my mom had for everything else. She put like Sesame Street on the television. I grew up watching like French and um, English speaking television um, to improve my English. My sister, because she did not have a hearing disability and she was younger, she was picking up English much quicker. My mom was like, Hablale a Mariela en Español. Hablale a Mariela en Inglés all the time. Y en la casa, usted habla en Español. So at home, we would speak Spanish. Outside of the house, we would be required to speak English. So it was like a lot of toughening up within the family structure. A lot of, you can do it. A lot of your disability is one aspect of who you are, but not the whole aspect. And that commitment for inclusion, that that pervasive, you can do it. Like even Gustavo, like, there were times that my mom would play, play music on the radio, like Selena Quintanilla um, or like Paulina Rubio or like Quinito Mendes. And everybody in the house would be singing. But this was before Google. So what my mom would do, she and my sister would have a cassette player on the radio 
and they would record the songs and then they would write the lyrics by hand That's amazing. so that I could read the lyrics, memorize the song. And when Selena Quintanilla came on, beady, beady, bum, bum, and I would be there with my little nose, like following along and singing with my family. And those are the types of things that made me realize that I need to be included. And it's not that I'm excluded because of my disability. It's that I need tools and I need need accessibility. And all of these things really began in the home. That's incredible. So I I had some similar experiences, but what what really strikes me, one is they they enabled you to succeed, right? They said, it's you can do it, you are capable, we're gonna help you when you need help, and then you're gonna find your way. But something that I was gonna bring up, which is interesting, is um we'll talk, we'll get into this more later, but when we meet on Saturdays with Project Hearing in your group you like to play a song for everybody before we start. So it's really interesting to me because I've talked to other people who are, have some type of hearing impairment who don't, don't really listen to music, don't really like music. So what I think you just answer the question, this is how you develop the relationship with music and why it was so important for you. It actually made you feel included. I mean, like, look behind me. There are two guitars here. There's an acoustic. These are not mine. These are my partners. But it's kind of like, I am just, it's this pervasive music in my life. Like, I am a part of this healing world. And it is a part of my family. It is, it is a part of my culture. And it is just something that I need to have certain tools to make it accessible for me. It's not that it's exclusive. It's just I need tools to make it accessible. Like this right here, what I'm wearing, this is a compilot that I use. It connects directly to my healing aids to make the sound of music clearer, to help me hear the nuances of music. So it's just a, it's just about like finding the right technology. And do you, when you wear that and you listen to music and it makes it clearer, um, is that something that, the more music you listen to, the more you can pick out those nuances and the more you can appreciate it. So your brain is also improving how you hear? 100%. So that's one of the things that I've learned from this year because this year, it's kind of like 20 years ago when I first got the cochlear implant. Everything sounds terrible. It sounds like, all the time. So um, it's really about forcing your, it's like a tree. The more you water it, um, the more it grows, the more it can develop, the more its roots expand. So the more you train your brain to hear music, to experience new sounds, the more more you're kind of just like putting in your brain, the more you're allowing your brain to understand. Fantastic. And and I think... So why why do you think, not to generalize, but why do you think other people with hearing impairments don't have that connection with music? Is it you think because maybe they haven't they haven't tried, or there wasn't that strong emotional connection when they were growing up? Like, how is it? Is there? What do you think? 
I think it's a combination of things. And this is actually one of the reasons why I'm considering going into archaeology. I want to become Doctora Paulino because it's also a lack of representation. Um, let's look at archaeology offices right now. I actually did a little bit of a study last summer and I wanted to see how accessible it was to just make an audiologist appointment. For you to make an audiologist appointment here in New York City, just to go to a clinic to get a hearing checkup, I found that 90% of the clinics here in New York City, you have to call to make an appointment. Now, that is the equivalent of you having a wheelchair and you create this building for wheelchair repairs, but the entrance to get into the building doesn't have a ramp, has five steps, is up on the fifth floor, no elevator. It is, how are you going to make audiologist appointments to cater to a population that has hearing disability and then not provide online appointment scheduling? not provide emails, not provide chat functionality. And that is a big problem within the hearing disability community. We don't make it accessible to receive the services that people need to be able to succeed. Um, like that's just the very first step, making an appointment to get your hearing evaluated and 90% of audiologist offices in New York City don't have that. So it's a lot of factors that prevent people with hearing disabilities from getting the resources they need, getting the support they need. And again, like I've already told you a little bit about my mom. My mom is not the type of person that takes no for, for an answer. Like she'll make it happen. She'll, she'll figure out a way to get me in that building and up on the fifth floor. Um, but I, I guess it's also not everybody has that type of support. Um, so all of these things make the, the very joy of being able to, to get the services that you need um, to have a positive experience with music or with language difficult. Does, so do you still go to NYU when you are trying to, you know, when you're having an update on the cochlear implants or just to check in, or are you going to, you know, is it like a, kids only program. I know for me, it's very difficult to find a doctor that treats adults uh, with my condition. So after 18 years old, they just kind of throw you to the, throw you to the wolves and you have to find, you know, a specialist on your own, you know? So it's, it's a, there's a big gap in, in medicine here with that. 100%, you are right on the money. And that's one of the big challenges just really across disability services in general, but particularly in hearing disability. A lot of services for people with hearing disabilities are focused on pediatrics yep. or geriatrics, um, children or older adults. So there's this entire population of people like you and me who are of working age, we're working, we're dating, um, we're traveling and there are no services for us. And the reason for that, if you really take a minute to think about it, is because the Americans with Disabilities Act, the first piece of federal legislation is only about 30 years old. 
Like it's just 30 years ago that people with hearing disabilities were given rights at the federal level, were given access to an education at the like at a federal level. We are seen as members of society before the ADA. People with disabilities were continuously institutionalized, were continuously put into like a, in, in, in hospitals away from society. 30 years ago, if I had had a hearing disability, I would have just been shunned. I would have just been excluded. Um, so it's really important for us to acknowledge that a lot of the things that we are seeing are the result. We are the first post-ADA generation. And so people like you and me are creating these spaces that really cater to people like us because so much of the work that exists within disability is really focused on really small children or older people. And so there's this entire segment of the population that is not getting services or is not getting the support that they need, which is why I created I did hearing because I was having all of these. I was like, you know, recent college graduate, testing the limits of like my independence, living away from home, dating. And there were all these things that I was like figuring out and nobody was talking about it. There were no resources. And I was just like, okay, this is a problem. We need to, there needs to be something about this because I know that the problems and the challenges are having I'm having are not just personal. They are part of a larger issue. So then you, so talk, can you talk about like, let's talk about that. Let's talk about project hearing. You, you gave us the why. Um, I would love, because I think you tell the story really well. Can you give us the, the listeners a little bit of a background in case they don't know about the ADA, how it actually came about and how the hearing impairment community was actually fundamental towards. I love talking about this. Yes. So two years before the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is the first federal piece of legislation that decided that separate is not equal when we talk about hearing, when we talk about disabilities, it was actually inspired two years prior by something known as deaf precedent now. There's a college out in Washington, D.C. called Gallaudet University. And Gallaudet is the harbor of deaf culture. It is the Mecca. It is like where if you are a deaf person, it is, it is the place to be. Because Gallaudet is all about creating access and inclusion for people who are deaf, hard of hearing. Anyway, two years before the signing of the ADA, um, the university had was considering three college presidents for it had an, it had to install a new college president and there were three options two of the three options were people with disabilities people who are familiar with deaf culture people that you know were ingrained in the very history that made Gallaudet Gallaudet and then you had a third candidate a woman did not have a hearing disability did not know American Sign language just did not have any connection to Gallaudet. The but university went ahead. Ask a quick question. Was, she, was she working as a professor at least at Gallaudet before, like, or they just nominated? We don't know how that she got nominated. 
That is correct, sir. She, if I remember correctly, she was a president at another college at the time, and they just wanted to bring her as a new college president for Gallaudet. So, yes. So, they were like, so Gallaudet, the board of trustees, they were like, oh, we know that we have two highly qualified deaf candidates, but no, we don't want them. We want the hearing person, the person who has no connection to Gallaudet, the person who has no connection to deaf culture or history. And the students at Gallaudet, they were like, oh, no, oh, I, I, no, no, we are not about this life. The professors protested, the students protested, the alumni protested. It turned into chaos. Students marched and locked down the school. And there's this whole history behind the protest itself. But at the end of the day, the students won. And the university overturned its decision and instituted its first deaf president. And that was the moment, oh my God, just talking about it gives me like shivers because it was the very first time in the history of really the United States when a person with a, with a disability had that much power where people with disabilities were really recognized as um, needing, as, as being as capable as anyone else, if only they received the accommodations they needed to be successful. And so the Deaf President Now movement inspired an entire new wave um, of civil rights legislation and and just kind of political power within the, the disability community that two years later, two years later, I mean, this was tremendous, tremendous political implications. Two years later, you had the first President Bush sign the ADA and that really changed. From then, it's just like, it's history. It's, it was, whoo, it was a moment. Yeah, I still remember when it was passed. I was young, but I, I remember feeling really good that day that, you know, finally we have something, something yep. that, that that's supposed to help, that's supposed to give us more opportunities to do something, to contribute to the world and to uh, have the world adapt to us just a little bit. 100%. And if you really think about it, um, movements like the ADA are really consequence of a lot of other social movements that were happening at the time. For example, you have Brown versus the Board of Education, which determined that separate will never be equal. And that's also one of the, the like central pieces of legislation that pushed the ADA, because when you create, when you liberate one group of people, you you not only liberate that group of people, you're liberating an entire segment of the population. You're you're giving people the idea that we all should have equal rights. We all deserve to be treated as human. We all deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. So, yeah. And now we're here we are and like this last few years, you're seeing all of this technology Like Google came out with Google Live Transcribe. You have Microsoft Teams, you have like just all of this technology that is taking off and like there's a real focus on, on accessibility and inclusion for, for people with disabilities across the board. So you are, so let's talk, let's get into project hearing, but just a little bit more about I think your expertise and your credentials, right? Like you are a you are a full stack developer, you are a technologist. Did you study this in college or did you 
learn it later. I did. So my very first job out of college. So let me give you the backstory there. Um, when I, w- I went to NYU and I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I was like, I want to fight for inequality and like change the world. And then I took, um, what's the name of that exam? The law school admission exam, the LSAT. The LSAT, yep. Yes. And I did fine. And then, um, but there was just something in me that was like, this is not for you. This is not, this is not it. And I really tried to, to listen to that little voice. And sometimes, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes I just make some major life decisions by flipping a coin. And I, like that, that is how I chose for a college I was going to go to. I flipped a coin and I was like, heads is NYU, tails was another school I got heads. And um, I was like, do I want to go to law school? Heads or tails, plum, I got no. And I had to figure out a way to tell my mom, who was like all about me becoming a lawyer, that I wasn't going to, lo- that I wasn't going to go to law school, but I needed to have a really good reason. So there was this program um, right after college called, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it was this program for people that had disabilities who wanted to work in the federal government. And I had applied. So the day of my graduation, Gustavo, I get a call. I'm about to walk up on the stage to, you know, shake hands and everything with, with the dean. And I get a call. Hi, hi. Is this Mariela Paulino? Yes, this is she. Who is this? <laughs> and hi, Mariela Paulino. It's the Department of Defense. And I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? I'm going through like every single thing I have ever done wrong in my life. I'm like, okay. And they're like, because I had applied for this program like one year ago. I mean, this is how slow the federal government, like getting a job in the federal government is. I had totally forgotten I had applied. So they're like, hey, we want to interview you for, for an intern position with the Department of Defense in Virginia. Wow. I'm like, sure, whatever. I go in for the interview, get the internship. And I, I really wanted to leave New York City because I wanted to prove, I felt like I had something to prove. I felt like I wanted to really test the limits of my independence, really prove that I could do it. So here I go, I had this job with the Department of Defense as an intern. And in that job, I got to work with a lot of lawyers. And I hated it. I hated it so much. I mean, I learned a lot from the job. I learned a lot about the federal government, but I didn't feel happy there. So I had a friend. Her name was, what was her name? Her name was? Real real quick question. So you, this internship, what were you you doing in the internship that you had to work with so many lawyers? It was, so I was working for the Office of the Inspector General of the Department of Defense. The Office of the Inspector General is the agency that oversees the Department of Defense. So this is the agency that makes sure that nothing shady is happening within the Department of Defense. We're talking about administrative um, 
like administrative investigations. Oversight. Yeah. oversight. Yeah. yeah, so investigations, budgets, oversight. So lots of working with lawyers, lots of politics. Um, and it, it wasn't it wasn't really my style. I mean, it was amazing work. I worked with some amazing people. And I learned a lot, but it wasn't what I wanted to do, especially when I was like 20. I was in my early 20s. I just wanted to have fun and go out and celebrate, um, you know, an election. And funny story here is that I think this was the second time that the Obama administration won. Gustavo, I go out into the streets. I'm just hanging out with friends, okay? Having a drink, celebrating in front of the White House. The next day, my supervisor calls me into her office and she's like, she 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 opens up her TV and she's like, Mariela, is this you? And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that is me. She's like, wow, you know, you're supposed to be an impartial. Like you cannot share any political affiliation with any agency because we're doing oversight of the DOD. So that wasn't really my style because I have lots of opinions about things. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't the right fit. But um, there's that. But I had a friend. Um, her name is Michelle. I know her from NYU. She was one year above me. We were friends on Facebook, which was very hot at the time. And um, I just check her profile on one day. I see she's traveling. One day she's in Africa. The next day she's like in Italy. The next day she's in Florida. The next day she's in California. And I sent her a message. And I'm like, Michelle, what do you do for work? Are you are you like selling drugs? Are you like, <laughs> what, what are you doing? Because like you're doing lots of traveling. So like, what what are you doing? Are you Are you like importing drugs? Like, what is this? Um, and she's like, no, actually I'm a web developer. And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but I want that as my job. So, um, I was like, so how do you become a web developer? She told me that she has studied that at NYU. And so she was very experienced in that, but she told me about this program that had just launched called Code for Progress. And Code for Progress was this program that was started out by this white guy who made lots of money. His words, his description was he's a white guy with a beer who works in tech. And he had created, he had worked in campaigns and data and he made millions of dollars from just, you know, that, that. That And he was going to these conferences. Everybody was a white guy with a funny beer. And his words were that it really bothered him and he wanted to see more diversity in tech. So he put his money where his mouth was and he created this fellowship program that was that whose goal was to get diverse populations on underrepresented groups and provide um, a space for them to learn. So she told me about this program called Call for Progress. They paid me $5,000 every month for five months wow. for me to learn how to code. That's amazing. That is unheard of. Yep, that's amazing. So here I am in this job that I didn't particularly like. And then I have this friend who's traveling all over the world doing technology. And she tells me about this program called Code for Progress. 
my luck, just my luck, when she told me about the program, it was the deadline for for the program. So I go about it and I'm like, ah, typing like a madman, submit the application like one minute before midnight. I got in and the reason why that program was so interesting to me was not just because of the career of being a software developer, but, but because I'm really fascinated by the ways that technology was, I was really fascinated at that time by the way that I saw technology moving. So this was around the time, like 2014, 2015, was around the time that Uber was coming on the scene. Like Mm -hmm. this was the first time I had heard about Uber. And oh my God, Uber changed the game for me because I remember a few months before I found out about Uber, I had gone to a party with a friend and in middle of nowhere, middle of nowhere, Virginia. And then my friend disappeared on me doing God knows what. And then I'm stuck in this house. I don't know anyone. I don't feel comfortable. I want to go home. And I'm calling a taxi company. And the person that was on the other on the other end of the, of the line, I don't know if they were having a bad night. I don't know what their issue was, but I pick up the phone and I'm like, hey, can you please pick me up at 1234 Avenue A? I have a hearing disability. I hate talking on the phone. It is the most difficult thing for me to do. Like I've joked that I would exchange my firstborn to not have to talk on the phone. <laughs> I probably will. My, my partner will probably not be very happy about hearing that, but that is how strongly I feel about talking on the phone. I hate it. So I'm like, on the phone with the operator, hey, um, I have a hearing disability. This is my address. Please pick me up. The operator had a very heavy accent. I could not understand what they were saying. The second or third time I asked them to repeat themselves, he goes, what the fuck is your problem? Are you retarded? And he hangs up. I have to call my sister here in New York City at four in the morning to call a cab for me in Virginia so that I could go home. And so these experiences made me realize that as independent as I was, my hearing disability still prevented barriers that could be fixed by technology. And the issue, the issue with telephones, right? I'm going to take a guess here, is a the the quality of the audio is terrible. One hundred percent. B, you can't. Uh, sometimes it's useful to lip read, and you can't do that because at least when we're seeing each other on video, if you don't understand me for some reason, or or whoever is speaking, you can try to read the lips, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's Correct. no there's no transcription. Exactly. And then there's also the issue of body language, which I am able to see because I'm able to see you. There's all this technology, which is now available. And it's also the way that the ears, so with my hearing equipment, this is the microphone, this piece right here. So imagine having to kind of like put your phone at just the right angle and then dealing with like background noise is a nightmare. Um, And so those experiences were really making me aware that technology had a very critical role to play in my own inclusion into the world. So I found out about this fellowship. I told my mom, hey, mom, you know, I don't think law school is going to work out. She was very angry about that for a minute. 
Um, but sometimes you just got to listen to that little voice. And so I went ahead, I did the fellowship and learned how to code. The program eventually decided to hire me as a staff. I went ahead, got my master's in Georgetown, which commutes a few more times. Um, but it's always coming back to private hearing. It's always coming back to trying to do my own thing. It's always coming back to trying to find solutions for problems that nobody else is trying to figure out. So I've worked as a software developer. I've, I've worked as a project manager. I've worked as a C chief operation officer. I, I travel all the way to Jamaica oh. to help them, like to help um, a, a team of people in Jamaica, like create their own tech program. Like, and all of these things have been possible because of this little piece of technology that allows me to hear, that allows me to have conversations like the one we're having today. So let's talk about project hearing. So tell us when did you know when did you start it? It was pretty recently. And tell us about the you know the the big event that you had a little <laughs> over a year ago and some of the work that you've been doing with people like Google. All right, so Project Hearing, hold on, let me just close this tab. So I started Project Hearing back in 2000, unofficially, back in 2014, 2015. The reason I started it was because I was driving in Virginia, which is the worst place for speeding. If you get, if you go even half a mile, above the speed limit, you will get pulled over. It is no joke in Virginia. Because, so. because you're such a good driver, you should be allowed to speed, right? Not the case. Not the case. <laughs> like, they, I, I don't know what it is about Virginia. Every time I even speed up just a little, there's always like that wheel, 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 wheel behind me. But that's besides the point. Um, so this was the first time I had gotten pulled over ever. And... Um, the, the the siren is ringing behind my car. And my mom and I have practiced this a few times before. Hands at three and nine and wait. The problem was, and the thing that we had not practiced, because you see my mom is very, very much about practice. My mom is very proactive. She's all about, she wanted to prepare me for everything that was coming. So what we had not prepared for or anticipated was that the officer would be speaking over the speaker. So the officer is giving me commands over the speaker. To me, those commands sounded like, whoa, 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 whoa. I cannot make out what he was saying. So he was telling me, probably turn off your vehicle, step out of the vehicle. I don't know, because I couldn't hear what he was saying. I just, I'm frozen in fear, hence at three and nine, and then just looking on my rear view mirror. Eventually, the officer comes out of his vehicle, hand on the holster. Now, this was during the time, during like, it was summer, it was hot, Trayvon Martin issue had just happened, and I'm like, I really don't want to die today. He comes over to my window, As soon as he does that, officer, I have a hearing disability. I cannot hear 
what you were saying. When I say that, the situation, the stress, the anxiety, the 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 officers kind of like demeanor, just chill. Eventually, because of this beautiful smile on this cute face, he eventually just let me go off with a warning. But um, he said, before he let me go, he said, you know, you, you really need to figure out what you're going to do about this hearing disability because it could have escalated. In my mind, I'm thinking, no shit. <laughs> but, um, and I asked him, well, what do you, what do you suggest I do? And he said, that's not my problem. Figure it out. That's terrible. And it's terrible. Yes, it is terrible. But it made me think, in the emergency, I'm the one that's the emergency. I need to be able to communicate. I, not the officer, I need to be able to communicate to the officer that I have a hearing disability because officers deal with all sorts of people all day long. So I needed to, to figure out a way to communicate that I had a hearing disability. And so what I did was that I decided to pursue my master's in communications at Georgetown to, to study how people with hearing disabilities like me interact with police officers. And what I found from my research was that a police officer will scan the back of your car for six seconds to figure out who you are. Do you have a National Rifle Association sticker on your car? Are you a teacher? Are you a doctor? Who are you? Why are you speeding? What kind of car do you drive? They do all of these assumptions about you in six seconds. Mm -hmm. So I needed to come up with something to communicate that I had a hearing disability in those six seconds. And so what I came up with was a sticker that I still have to this day in the back of my car that says death driver in big bold letters, like right there. And um, that is the type of, that, that is really what started everything because I started thinking, how can I make my life easier? So every time I have a challenge that is related to my hearing disability, I think, how can I solve this problem? And going now into Google, one of the biggest challenges, one of the greatest fears that I have in life is dying in a fire act, in a fire period. Like, because when I go to sleep, I have to take off both of my hearings. So I hear nothing, which is why I'm such a deep sleeper. And especially living in Manhattan, we live next to a police station. There's a police station, a hospital, and a fire station all within like a few miles from us. So our street is always crazy. Um, and so for me, I sleep like a baby. My partner, I can't say the same. And while that is useful in some situations, if there's a fire and there's a fire in the building and people are knocking, I'm not going to hear it. I'm going to sleep through it. That is my greatest fear. So I had been thinking about two years ago, why don't I create something that when somebody presses the doorbell, because that's usually, you have to think of the basics. I need to create something that when people press the doorbell, because that's like step one, the lights blink in the house. And so I looked up all of the technologies for creating smart technologies and they were so expensive. 
Um, but I had a friend, his name is Raymond. He works at Google. And I, I had talked to him about these ideas. And Raymond, a true ally, he had resources and, and other people that he knows. He said to me, Mariela, put together a proposal for the things you need. I'm going to see if I can talk to someone at Google to maybe get this sponsor. Because it's always like, it's always people in power and privilege that hold these keys to capital. And true allies make sure that they are able to kind of take that key and share it with others. So Raymond did that. I, I wrote the proposal. He shared it with a few people. And one of the people that, that saw my proposal, his name is Dr. Vince Cerf. Dr. Vince Cerf is one of the founding fathers of the internet. He actually created email as we know it. He is brilliant and incredibly generous. And he heard about my idea. His wife has a hearing disability just like me. So he had a lot of interest in this. And he goes ahead and he loved my proposal, loved my idea, thought it was reasonable and went ahead and paid for all the tools that I needed. And I created my first smart home technology, which was at this time a ring doorbell that connected to the Philips Hue light bulb so that when you press the doorbell, the Philips Hue light bulb light up. And since then, I've grown to develop that product because the ring doorbell is really fancy. You don't want to be having a ring doorbell in your apartment in the Bronx. So <laughs> I downgraded it to a Samsung button, which is like this one. And I painted it the same color as my door so it doesn't stick out too much. And now when you press any one of the buttons in the house or when you connect it to the door outside, see how everything just lit up. So um, Dr. Vent became aware of my work. And then I started doing a lot of events around technology, around awareness. And last year was a really important year because it was the 30th anniversary um, of the ADA. And I wanted to create an event that really celebrated that history and especially that celebrated the ADA through the lens of hearing disability, like deaf residents now and like all these things that we've talked about today. And so we hosted that conference last year. It was seven days. We got sponsored by Google for ASL and captioning, which is very expensive. Google paid for that. Um, and then this year, I'm trying to do it again. Go bigger, go bolder. You know all about this. You're part mm -hmm. of the team. But we are trying to really um, bring the disability conversation to technology. So we're trying to get companies like Amazon to really make a commitment for accessibility companies like Microsoft. Um, Google, I'm trying to get them to be a part of this again, but just really have a space that really caters to the hearing disability experience, really celebrates everything that we've done and just really highlights the power of technology for accessibility because accessibility doesn't just help people with disabilities. There is something known as the curb cut effect. So I don't know how much more time we have. I don't know if you want me to stop. Let's keep as much time as let's let's at least try for another, you know, 15, 10 minutes, 15 minutes and see. Sounds good. Okay. So there's something known as the curb cut effect. 
the curb cut effect um, is the result of, if I remember correctly, during the Second World War, you had a lot of veterans that were coming back from the war, but they had a lot of mobility issues, like lots of people lost, lost their arms and their legs. There was one specific veteran. I cannot remember where. It was somewhere in the Midwest. And he was complaining. He was bothered about the fact that because of the curbs, because curbs, curb cuts, that thing that allows wheelchair users to kind of go into a block, those were not available. They did not exist. And so a lot of veterans were not get from point A to point B because that little stoop prevented them from having mobility access. So there was this one veteran and he wanted to change this and he was able to get um, the politicians in his local area to create curb cuts in his block so Mm -hmm. that like he started, he can move around in one block and that changed everything because it all starts with one person making one little difference. And so he was able to create curb cuts in his block and then that block extended into another block, which extended into another block, which then extended into federal legislation to mandate that whenever we create a block, it creates accessibility. But what we've learned is that those curb cuts not only help people with mobility impairments or mobility challenge, it also helps a woman with a stroller. It helps the elderly. It helps people who have were carrying around bags. It helps pretty much everyone. And that is what's known as the curb cut effect. When you create accessible design, you are creating good design. Therefore, good design is accessible design and accessible design is good design. So when we get these companies and these tech organizations to prioritize accessibility in in everything they do, when we advocate, when we unify behind a common theme, we're able to really change history. For example, I don't know if you know this, but after so much petitioning from the deaf and hard of hearing community, Zoom should now be rolling out free auto captioning for its free accounts. That's actually a feature that was only available to the paid accounts and that costs about $200, I think a month or a year, $200 just to have accessible captioning. So now that we are able to have captioning on Zoom, that's not only helping me as a person with a hearing disability, it's also helping my mom, who's an English second language um, speaker, is helping people with language processing difficulties, is helping someone who's in a meeting who with background noise. So accessibility helps everyone, and that is what the curb cut effect is. Really interesting. So with with project hearing then right what you're i guess what you're trying to do is keep that that curb cut effect going build some momentum on it so that there can be more accessibility for people with hearing dis- hearing disabilities so what's the next what's the next step for you there like what's the besides getting you know the big steps of getting these other technology companies involved like what does this what is this conference going to look like in, what's the date of the conference? July 22nd. July 22nd. So 
what's the agenda for this conference look like that's different from last year? Aside from uh, aiming for less more big fish this year, um, I want this to be a conference where we really, really incorporate the full spectrum of of technology companies. I'm really trying to get more people to talk about accessibility, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, um, Apple. Um, Last year, I really partnered with Google because one, we only had about one month to plan for this conference. I mean, I have no idea how I did it, but I had a team of three people that volunteer their time who are absolutely brilliant. But this year, we have an entire team of about 10, 11 people who want to be a part of this. Uh, We have people like you who are well-connected, who are able to really help help me expand this and and make it bigger and make it bolder. So that's one of the things I hope to make a little bit different from last year, just really make it bigger and better. We had 440 RSVPs last year. This year, I'm aiming for a thousand people um, and just a lot more sponsorship. I think it's also amazing that when uh, we were all introducing ourselves for the first time a week ago at the advisory, the first like advisory board meeting, and people were talking about, you know, why they were there and how they found you, there were so many people who we're following you on your Instagram account. That just struck me. That was so powerful because it was like, wow. So we have just people that like following you on Instagram, they're, they're fans, and they decided to make this commitment to come help you build this project hearing and this event into something even bigger. I mean, that, did that take you by surprise? Did that, how, did you, how did you feel or were you expecting that? It did not take me by surprise because I'm a firm believer that if you do the work, like one of the things my mom says uh, is, cumple, tu, cumple tus deberes para demandar tus derechos, uh, which means, um, how do I translate it it's in English? It's um, do what you're supposed to do so, so that you can demand the things you want. I am very happy because for this last year, I've been really investing so much into project hearing. I mean, these last three years, I've been working full-time. I worked full-time for the City University of New York as a project manager under a grant, one of the last grants signed by the Obama administration. And that was a lot of work. That was intense. Um, But I really made a commitment about a year and a half ago, you know what? I'm going to give project hearing 100%. And I'm talking about from six to two in the morning, every day on the weekends, creating content, talking to people, putting materials together. And so everything that you're seeing now is really the manifestation of all of that work. So it makes me so happy that I am able to get people to think about accessibility, getting people to think about inclusion, getting people to think about technology. And just kind of like driving that message all day, every day. And I'm, 
it's it's so awesome that it's finally clicking for people that this is important. That makes sense. And that's that's a that's a beautiful thing. You put in the work, you put in the time, and and you're getting the the benefits out of it that that you know you deserve. So that's that's fantastic. Yeah, but I will tell you, bro, I am looking for a job. Uh, I think project hearing is it's really a passion project. The passion project sometimes takes years, years, years to, to become profit generating. Um, so I am looking for a job. And what I hope to do is just really have project hearing be something that continues to grow, having a staff that helps me help it grow. But at the same time, it's really hard because you have all of these competing like priorities. Like I'm also thinking about getting married, having kids, settling down, relaxing. You know, I, I feel like I'm not ready for that yet. But I'm also thinking I want to be able to, to get to that next stage in my life. And whether it is through project hearing or doing the work that I'm doing for project hearing within an established um, organization, we have yet to find. Okay. So how can people find you, reach out to you, help you, contribute, sponsor? So if you are interested in finding me, connecting me, seeing my content, the first thing you want to do is just find me on social media. I am on Instagram, which is like my primary account, on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Clubhouse. Clubhouse is like the hot new thing, all the cool kids that are in Clubhouse. But I am on all those platforms for Project Hearing. If you are interested in sponsoring Project Hearing, you can either sponsor by giving your time, becoming a volunteer, or you can give some dinero because I love dinero. Dinero is necessary <laughs> in life. Um, hashtag face Cardi B in the background money. So um, sponsoring us by actually giving us funding uh, would be incredibly helpful. You can also email me at hello at projecthearing.com if you want to talk more. There's also lots of workshops that are going to be happening in the next few weeks. Um, that you can sponsor, you can donate. So there are lots of ways to get involved. And there's also my website, budgethearing.com, and that will be getting revamped in the next few weeks, but that's also another great resource to get connected. Fantastic. And my last question and is, what did I miss anything that you feel it's important to talk about that you didn't get to say or that you'd like to highlight? It took me a really long time to make peace with my disability. It took me a really long time to use the word disabled to describe myself. And the reason why I am creating Project Hearing is really because I want to be the example that I wish I had had when I was growing up. I wish that there had been a Mariela and she had a hearing disability and she was doing all of these things. And um, 
I want to be for someone the representation I didn't have. I want to see a Latina audiologist. I want to see a Latina CEO. I want to see a version of myself, disability, Latin, Latina, New Yorkina. Like I want to see all of these things that I am represented to really be the representation I needed because I feel like if I had seen a version of myself now, and I love this version of myself that I am now. I love the version of myself I am becoming. And if I had seen that version of myself when I was younger, some version of that, I feel like that would have made such a difference in how I acknowledge and deal with and how I would have processed my hearing disability. I probably would have started project hearing much, much sooner if I had had the type of representation that I am for myself when I was younger. And I would like to add to that. I feel the same way, you know, but it's not, it's not just in leadership. It's not just in, in business and politics, but in media, right? Where are the characters in the Hollywood films? Where are the characters on Netflix that have disabilities on TV shows, movies, that have disabilities that aren't either typecast, right, in some way as, the, as just an inspirational figure or a sidekick, but that are actually powerful, that are actually contributing something meaningful to the story that we can look up to, that we could have looked up to as kids and that kids today can look up to and say, I want to be like that person. I 100%. And that's actually the thing, Gustavo, because I feel like so much of, of these conversations is easy for us to talk about all of the things that are wrong. It's easy for us to talk about all the things that are But the real challenge is what are you doing about it? Like that's, that is like what drives all of my work. It's easy to complain. It's easy to demand, easy. But doing the work, Waking up every day, putting on a team of people together, finding sponsorship, putting petitions, recreating a website. Like those things take time. Those things take energy. It's so easy to complain about things. It takes work to do the work. And I generally like, actually, if there was one thing I could, I could say is really don't just complain about it. What is your solution? What are you doing about the problem? And I really wish that more people took that approach. What are you doing to solve the problem? Because when you really, when you look at these problems like disability, it's like talking about poverty. It's such a big problem. It's a humongous problem. But if you focus on just what it, what can you do where you are with the resources that you have, if you focus on that, you are able to create change. For me, for project hearing, that change comes in the form of, I want to teach people how to be allies by teaching them how to caption. That, that is my, my mission. That is the focus of what I'm about. You became an ally just now. You now know that when you do a Zoom meeting, you're going to make a caption. That is my goal in everything that I do with Project Hearing. It's about kind of driving that point home that we all have a role to play in making the future acceptable. So what is the problem? 
that you see and what are you doing to solve it? Absolutely. Don't stop at the problem just because it's big, just because it's overwhelming. Figure out your solution. Adapt, right? Create Figure something. out a solution. Yeah. Like how do you eat an elephant? Not that I would ever eat an elephant, but how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So that is that is something I stand firmly behind on. Like, don't just complain about things. Solve the problem. Okay, that's that's beautiful. Then uh, I, we're going to end it there. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the time. It's thank you for hearing me. Welcome. Thank you.